Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. I had just been through puberty, despising my body every day. And so I think it was really hard for me to respect my body, like treat my body well, reconnect with my body. Like I just felt like two separate beings. Hello and welcome to The Body Protest. In this podcast, we combine storytelling with science to better understand our relationship with our bodies. I'm Nadia Craddock and I'm a body image researcher. And I'm Honey Ross and I'm a writer. This podcast is brought to you by The Pink Protest. Three, two, one, one. Hi, Hi. body protest. Hi, body protest. It's it's getting more. (laughs) The build-up is so huge I don't even know what to do with myself because it's over zoom as well I think it's like the fear of like what if there's a lag it's like no we're creating the lag there is no lag it's I don't even know if it's a fear it's (laughs) um it's just the anticipation of it all it's too exciting happening that you know we're doing it but it's that time of the week again where I get to see your face that's I get so excited even just saying the words um hello my love how are you darling Nadia Oh, I am very well, thank you. We're just talking before. I have just had a midday bath. Oh, yes. Um, and I just don't know why I've not done it more this through this whole pandemic because every time I've done it, I have been just so filled with like this is how I need to live my life it's transcendent any to be honest I know and Becky even said this in the last episode of like that's the textbook self-care thing but I'm like Mm. yes and rightly so because every time I get into a bath I feel like I'm not mentally ill anymore I still am (laughs) but I feel like I'm not (laughs) yeah but textbook self-care but not when you do it midday mid working midday that's when you keep it exciting for yourself that's really like spicing things up for yourself exactly anyway how are you i actually want to go kind of beyond how you and tell me all about that ice cream band that came but also how are you (laughs) i'm fine i am still on my writing deadline i'm being very boring but the ice cream van was the most exciting thing that's ever happened um me and my boyfriend sprinted to it and like it was there was like two lovely adidas ladies all dressed up and they were so nice to me and they gave us both a bottle of elderflower and we like and they just like filmed me frolicking in the sun with my ice cream by the van and i was like this is pretty fucking great i was like okay i could get used to this ice cream life it was it was sunny you had the outfit um what flavor ice cream did you have so everyone was going like i'm trying to guess is it strawberry is it blackberry it was just pink vanilla but 
Pink Vanilla Pink is still vanilla. exciting. It was just a, a tinted Mr. Whippy, but you know what? I was thrilled to have it because it was still a Mr. Whippy that I was not planning on having anyway. Yeah, Mr. Whippy is overlooked so much, I feel. Like that Slept is such on. a classic. Yeah, yeah. It's disgraceful. It's a, it's a classic. It's got a very different vibe to, um, you know, your, I don't know, Hagendaz or whatever. Your textbook but, scooped vanilla. No, because yeah. it's, it's whipped, it's delicious. Mr. Whippy. There's more fun in it. There's, there's, it's more playful. So you could yeah. put, and they like put little pink sprinkles on it, little, it, it was great. I felt real unadulterated in a child joy, and it was lovely. It's very rare that you oh. get to feel like the pure joy. And also, like, they were just like, oh, it's so nice when we get to like deliver ice cream to someone who's so like happy and happy. great. Because, like, <laughs> and I was like, how could anyone not be this happy to have an ice cream man turn up to their house? It was the best thing. Oh, I was living vicariously through you that day. When I saw the pictures, I was, <gasps> well, dream. I can't wait dream. till we can get ice cream together again. I know, I know. But on the topic of dreams, we have a dream guest on this episode. This is such a special episode for us. I mean, we, to be honest, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for Scarlett mm. Curtis. Like, Scarlett Curtis, who was our guest today, oh, I just love her so much. You know, she... I, I feel like I say this about most of the guests that I bring on, but I'm like, they got me out of a really dark time. And I'm like, oh God, why is it? Do I say that about all of them? But Scarlett is one of those people who just shows up for a friend. She is an unbelievable woman. She talks about her experiences growing up. She talks about her relationship to her body. She talks about how yoga has really helped her reconnect to her body. And we're going to be talking a bit about that at the end with a lovely, delicious knowledge noodle. But you know what? I can't even do Scarlet justice. So without further ado, here is Scarlet. My name is Scarlet Curtis. I am a writer and activist, although in 2020, I think it's been hard to feel like I'm either of those. Um, I am one of the co-founders of The Pink Protest and I curated two books, one called Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies and one called It's Not Okay to Feel Blue and Other Lies. And that's my dog barking and introducing herself. <laughs> Scarlett, we are so happy to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. You are one of my favourite people in the whole world, so it truly is an honour to have you on the podcast. I feel like I've sat in on so many body protest recordings and now I finally get to be featured. Scarlett was, for people who don't know, the original producer of the podcast. She obviously, she retired, well, not retired, you moved on to... <laughs> I, not greener pastures, because we're pretty green pastures, but you moved on to different pastures. Yeah, I think more I just accepted that I... That you can't do doing... all of the incredible work you're doing and then produce our podcast. I can't do everything. No. Um, and that's not for though... lack of trying. You really did do everything. But... I feel like the hardest thing about when you overwork yourself is the things you actually want to do end up being the things you can't do. I mean, I'm sure that could not be the case but no I completely yeah, it's tough isn't it that resonates with me <laughs> definitely remember those first the early days of the body protest and sitting around in your building recording that was like very I know I was I was trying to finish my degree at the same time as publicizing this book and producing all these podcasts and recording my own and my biggest memory is just showing up to my university classes with like all this microphone recording <laughs> equipment in my bag <laughs> And like sitting in this like tiny desk with like five microphones and a ten laptops and being like, I'm a normal student, I promise. You know what? Actually, this is I. This is a question we wanted to end on, but I actually think this is a really lovely one to start on. 
you've always used your platform to uplift other voices and including our voices I mean you definitely got us on the track of doing this podcast you know you really helped us get off the ground you know you worked with Amica George at the start of her career you know in the early days of the body protest early days of the pink protest and you know obviously your books are all about highlighting other people's voices what has compelled you to do that like that's always been something that you seem to have done naturally was there anything that kind of pushed you to be that kind of person I mean that's a and a very kind question. I think I, yeah, I mean, I don't want to th- anyone to think I'm like some sort of mad saint. I do also spend most of my time uplifting myself. Um, but I, I think it's probably that I am just fundamentally like a fangirl at heart. Like I have always been such a geek in terms of, and that's a really overused phrase, but for me it like does feel true in terms of like, women that I admire and I feel like since I was sort of 14 I've just collected these women that I become obsessed with and you know those women happen to be like activists and writers and interesting people um but I think it's just it just truly is the most exciting thing to me anyway any anywhere and I'll always be more interested in like other people's stories than my own I think I don't know and also it's just it's just fun I also think cynically it was I I mean I'm better at it now but historically I've not been very good at making friends and I have very low confidence in like myself as a friend or a young person or like a kind of person people want to go to parties with so I truly think for a long time I'd find people I wanted to be friends with and be like, I can offer them work and like I can ask them if we can work together and then maybe we'll become friends. And like, if you look at all my best friends, it's all people that I approached on a professional, um, you know, basis and then was like, shall we also go out for dinner? Um, And I think I'm learning more. You doing that is the most incredible. I mean, that what a kind of friend to be though to be like I want to not only I see the beauty in other women but I I want to take that and work with it and be with it and like that's your way of courting a friendship like I think that's really beautiful I mean you definitely did it with me yeah and and I did it with you I did like fully you saved my fucking life by getting me on board with pink protests like I've said that before I have to say that on the record like the state you found me in when we you know you you pulled me out of the bloody gutter so I'm so grateful I have such a memory of me and you, like, so depressed, just walking around the Glossier shop in New York, <laughs> yes. like, trying to pretend we were okay. I have those photos, those are, like, the nicest photos we have together, and we were so sad. <laughs> we were so sad. But also, that was such a turning point, like, that day was the first day I'd felt happy in a very long time, and that's because of you. Oh, I want to cry. Well, I think, yeah, and I think for me it was... In, in some ways, I guess it was like a, a way to make friends when I was insecure in other parts of me. And I'm definitely trying now to be like, if you want to make friends with someone, you can just say, like, let's go for lunch. You don't have to offer them this, like, big yeah, project. Yeah, you don't have to offer them a five-year you know? plan. Like, it's... Yeah. The friendship is enough. Yeah. You have so much to offer as a friend. The most to offer yeah, as a friend. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I think I'm trying to build up that confidence a bit more. And I also think a lot of people make friends through work, right? I think lots of people, as an adult, once you've left school or university or or that kind of thing, you do end up making friends a lot of the time through the people you work with. So if you've got more of a freelance type way of working, I can see that being a way of at least bringing people together in the first instance. So 
I also don't think it's something to to be too down on yourself about either because it's it's an it's a, as we say a really lovely thing to to do and you've got a shared interest and then how how can you move forward from there yeah no you're so right and and I'm not down on myself and I think being freelance can be hard and like if this year where suddenly everyone's been freelance essentially in terms of like working from home mm. I think it's really showed us all like how crucial those relationships are where you know you're working with someone or collaborating on ideas with someone or anything like that Mm. um I remember my dad saying to me when I was like complaining about not having a boyfriend once he was like how would you ever meet a boyfriend like you only work with women you only hang out with women you only like interact with feminists like in which scenario of this picture would you have met a boyfriend who's like you need to start working on some like men's rights activism <laughs> if you're ever gonna meet any men but you'll um, pivot into the mri mra <laughs> space it's gonna be very shocking for a lot of people yeah i know no but um yeah it's definitely true and also i think you know speaking of my dad um i think i am have always been like very aware of my privilege and um when i first got involved with activism in New York especially I was kind of part of a lot of like grassroots groups there and was very much told like you are a person of privilege like you know you have all uh, it just had it all there was kind of a crash course in like checking your privilege because you know I was working with like Black Lives Matter groups and all these sort of on the ground women's groups and um it it was just a real it was an amazing time and I think instead of being ashamed of that which you know I think is kind of pointless I was just like well why don't I try and use my privilege in every single way possible to um try and lift other people up I'm not saying I'm like perfect at it but I think that's definitely a a part of it that's definitely to me as an outsider very evident also in terms of what you've been doing through the pink protest through the two books and Mm. your work going forward so I think that's that makes a lot of sense to me yeah and I think a lot of people go like try and pretend nepotism like doesn't exist and it's like well it does exist I mean it's not everything like it's not gonna you know but it does exist so we might as well like talk about it and use it and like if I can you know give someone a connection or a whatever or whatever then it's much better than me walking around being like no nepotism doesn't affect anything like I worked all of this on my own you know I just I don't know it's no it's not so I really appreciate your honesty with that I think that's something I still struggle to address and talk about openly because I think I feel not so much defensive but I feel like you know there is an element of like it's not everything and we have worked hard but it is it helps of course it helps and it's something that is important to be acknowledged yeah and I think the reason I'm able to say that's because like especially in my early portion of my life like terrible things happened to me and nepotism didn't stop those happening Completely. like you know it's not the like be all and end all of anything it's a lovely advantage and like we might I don't know I just said we might as well talk about that yeah and I think it's a nice segue into talking about your relationship with your body growing up and so I wonder if you're happy to share what your experience was yeah I mean that is the point of this podcast I've been just like banging on about <laughs> random stuff um No, it's really funny. As I was preparing to come on here, I was sort of thinking about my relationship with my body and like my early, early, my childhood and like early Mm. teens. And I think I actually had like a pretty good relationship with my body. I'm the only girl in my family. I've got three brothers. And I actually think something about not 
having a sister weirdly like help when I was growing up because like me and my brothers would just kind of be naked all the time together we like lived in Bali for a year and we've got all these pictures where like I was definitely too old to be running around naked but like all of us are just these kind of weird wild hippie chi- children um and then once I went to secondary school I was I was kind of like a terrible teenager teenager I was like definitely one of the popular girls my school didn't have a uniform we'd all wear like the most ridiculously tiny shorts and like crop tops every single day like I wore you know masses of black eyeliner and like blue glitter on my face and you know <laughs> just all this like and and I just remember like I think my relationship with my body then was much more about like makeup and clothes it wasn't about like the actual substance of my body it was just like how can I convince my mom to take me to you know up and after this weekend to get me another t-shirt whatever and I was at an all-girls school where I know that there can be really it can lead to really like horrible relationships with girls bodies but for some reason in my year we were all quite like positive I think is what I remember um and then when I was 14 I had this operation on my back um and within like a day became um basically incapacitated I was in constant pain for three and a bit years I um couldn't really walk I was like in in and out of a wheelchair I dropped out of school I um you know was taking massive medication I mean I could obviously talk about this forever but that just did come I was 14 and I think it was just this cocktail for like disaster and it it completely separated me from my body and my body became this like battleground of just pain and horror and misbelief like I didn't I didn't trust my body I was told that the pain in my back wasn't real I was told that I was making it up I was told that um the main treatment they gave me for about two years was that I could never be in enough pain. It was like, the pain isn't real. So um, you should always be in the most amount of pain possible. Like, there is no amount of pain that is too much pain. Um, So actually, when I say it's weird, because sometimes to be brief, I'll be like, I was in a wheelchair. And it's like, I should have been in a wheelchair because it was agony to walk. But I wasn't allowed most of the time to be in the wheelchair because I was like, had to walk. So my body just became, it was just horrible. Like I I completely disconnected from everything and I hated my body. And I started to believe that I was making the pain up. So I just really associated my body with like mistrust and pain. Like it was just like, you should be in pain, you know? And I think you know this amazing thing happened when I was 17 and I had another operation and they basically figured out I had a screw in my spine and I'd had a screw in my spine the whole time and um I wasn't making the pain up and within six months I was out of pain and I was you know 17 and a half I'd got no A-levels no GCSEs I was just like uh, I had been out of school for three years but I wasn't in pain anymore and I kind of think the last eight years have been me you know, just learning how to unlearn all that stuff that was built into me and my body for that long. Uh, And I can't say I'm like completely there yet, but um, I'm definitely, I think it's probably going to be a lifelong thing, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, just hearing you talk about it is so... The way you talk about it as well is so powerful because you're so clear-headed and you've had so much time to process it and think. I think one thing I find really interesting about what you've said is, and we talk about this on the podcast, often a way that people help their relationship with their body is moving away from the way it looks and focusing on body functionality. But of course, when you're experiencing that level of chronic pain every day for three years, there's limitations on what your body can do. Did you find that to be part of your journey of kind of like, well, of course, the functionality of your body is not the thing that's making you feel grounded in your body because you don't, you have those limitations. But two, how did that impact you? Yeah, you're so right. And I, I, it's so clever you say that because I've never quite put it that way. But so the reason I had this operation was because I had scoliosis and the scoliosis had developed really quickly. But by the time I had the operation, you could see it. Like my back was very scoliosis is when your spine is s-shaped basically my spine was really severely s-shaped so by the time I had the operation you really could see the curve I felt no pain like up until the day of the operation I was incredibly lucky a lot of people with scoliosis have masses of pain I think because mine developed so quickly like I it hadn't hurt me yet um but yeah but I've got pictures of myself before the operation and I had an s-shaped body like it's a you know it's a kind of quote unquote weird thing to see and then when I had this operation I grew four inches in two hours because they straighten your spine um I'd always had like a tiny torso and suddenly I had this like long torso you know and they sewed me up they the scar healed quite quickly and so nothing in me was ever visible like this sounds insane to say, but I look great. Like I had, I was taller than I'd ever been. I was, you know, I don't know. I wasn't wearing makeup. So my skin was great. Like I was a 15 year old girl with, you know, I was a perfectly fine looking 15 year old girl, but the inside of my body and what I was experiencing was hell. And I was also being told that what I was experiencing wasn't real. And I think there's this funny thing that happens, especially when children are sick, where everyone tries to make the best of it. So everyone in my life knew that I was sick, but every time I saw someone, they would say, you look great. You look so much better. You look amazing. You know, you look better than last time I saw you, you blah, blah. And now I know if that happened to me now, I'd know how to do that. But at the time it just felt so silencing and so horrible. It's like the worst thing someone could say to me because the inside of my body was screaming every second of every day. And I remember just wishing, and this sounds so wild, but wishing that I was, the thing I was used to imagine was I wished I was bleeding from my eyes or I wished that I had like a gaping wound on my back or that someone could see what I was going through. And because I wasn't even allowed to use the wheelchair, which I think can be, a, you know, it can be an indicator of what's going on inside. It's also a lot of other things, but it, you know, it's an outward indicator as well as an incredible tool. And because I wasn't even allowed to use that, I just, yeah, it was it was the total opposite of what you're saying. You know, it was like, I looked fine always. And it was just the, the functionality inside that was just horrific. Yeah. And that's so interesting that people said to you that you looked great. You looked, you look good. With hindsight, what do you wish people had said? I mean, 
I think we, as a society, we really need to address, especially how we talk to and talk about sick kids, because there's such a wild dialogue about it. I mean, the amount, the main thing I was, you know, I was told I look great. I was also told that I was going through it for a reason, that I was going to be so strong. I was going to be so clever. You know, people tell you stories. I used to constantly get stories like, I knew this girl and she was out of school and she read every work of Shakespeare um, and, you know, learnt them off by heart. And I'd be like, well, I've seen every episode of Grey's Anatomy <laughs> and I cry all day and I haven't read a book in a year. Um, so, and then when people would say to me, you're going through this for a reason, I get it now. Like they were saying it was going to make me stronger or whatever. But I felt like, A, they were telling me I deserved it. And B, they were telling me that it was fine. They were like justifying it. You know, they were like, yeah, you're in this pain, but like, it's fine. Well, you it's know? almost and... like I think adults say that to make themselves feel comfortable of like, oh, well, I'll, I'll check in with her in five years and she'll be okay. And she'll have a really strong character for it. And you're like, I don't want hmm. the character growth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm good. Still to this day, I'm like, I would have, I'd rather be like, really stupid and horrible and not have been through this which I was the path I was heading down like I was a massive bitch in school and I'm not as much of a bitch now but I'm like I'd rather have been that bitch and gotten like d's at a level than have gone through that you know I'm glad you're um, not that bitch though because I feel like you would not have been my friend and I'm glad you're my friend <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but I not to answer your question I think what I wish people would say and what I advise people to say is just to like commiserate just to be like mm. Don't try and make it better. Don't try and... There's no bright side. There's no bright side to a child who's in pain 24-7. You can just sit with them and say, like, this sucks and I'm really sorry you're going through it. And if anyone had said that to me, I think it would have just felt like the biggest relief in the world. But people don't like... People think that's going to make it worse. Or Also, people would not want to talk to me about it. And I was like... Well, it's the own, you know, there's this idea of like, I don't want to bring it up. And it's mm. like, I'm in pain every second of every day. I'm not going to forget that I'm sick. Like, you know, you could yeah. and It's you like people are, people are so frightened of pain as well, isn't it? I can, so I can see people hedging around that kind of conversation. And so you spoke about during this experience, like feeling that you missed, you didn't trust your body and you felt very disconnected from it. And you said that you're kind of on this process and, and journey of maybe reconnecting and retrusting your body what are some of the things that you do to do that what enables that process for you yeah I mean I after I stopped being pain I had like a true breakdown I tried to go back to school for six months me and honey were actually at school together for six months and then I dropped out I spent basically another two years unable to leave my bedroom but this time because every time I stepped out of my bedroom I had a panic attack so my mental health, which had kind of been hanging on by a thread, was suddenly destroyed. And I think, weirdly, once again, I felt that chasm between my outside and my inside. Like, I still looked fine, you know? And, and yeah, I was like, my brain was exploding on me every second of every day. And I think, like, there's been a lot of parts of it of reconnecting my body. I think one is the psychological, which is, you know, I do... I was trained at such an early age to accept and almost like strive for pain. And that pops up so much in this weird way. Like the story I have that explains it, I think, best is I was living with two roommates in New York and they went away for 
winter break and they came back and the flat was freezing like the weather had just dropped and um it was so cold and I'd been there for like three days like in this freezing cold flat and they were like they came back and they were like what the hell it's ice cold in here why didn't you turn the heating on and it had got cold and it hadn't even clicked in my brain that I could make it better I was just like no now I live in cold and that's fine and like I think that's the way that I treat I don't react to pain in like a normal way anymore you know I I like it's like I they overran that receptor so I'm I'm much too good at accepting pain and so a big part has just been trying to kind of rewire those tracks and be like pain is real I also constantly think I'm making up pain um so this is all now just really like deep no word. this is, is exactly okay? what we yeah. you know as so, long as you feel happy sharing we're so happy yeah, that yeah. you are comfortable no, I never get to talk about this stuff I am um, I I'm also hypermobile which is was part of my diagnosis um and I was actually I know you've talked to people with Ellis Dallas syndrome but I was in treatment for Ellis Dallas syndrome wrongly for years which was a whole other thing but uh, oh, because of my hypermobility, I have quite a lot of teeth problems, which is something really common for people with hypermobility. I actually didn't syndrome. know and... that because I'm hypermobile and now I'm like, yeah. oh, fuck. Okay, can I just also say no dentists know this? No. So I have had teeth problems my whole life. So is my mum. She's hypermobile. We always get blamed by the dentist. And then I finally found this out and was like, okay, maybe someone should tell the dentist <laughs> so they don't just tell you you haven't been flossing. <laughs> um, anyway, so me, this is another story related to honey which most of my stories are but me and honey a few years ago were going to a hen night and I'd been so excited about it like couldn't be more excited about it and a few days before I developed this horrific tooth infection which ended up like kind of paralyzing half my face and but it was so painful and I really was like so upset about it but I ended up being like look I can't come to this um hen night I've got this tooth infection and I remember after I'd told the bride, um, thinking to myself, God, why am I making up this tooth infection so I don't have to go to the hen night? Like, I thought I was really excited about going to the hen night. And I immediately felt pain and assumed I was making it up. Because for so long, I was told that any pain I was in, I was making up. So that's been a lot for me to learn. And like, you know, just kind of try and trust myself again and trust my pain receptors again and also like know that now it's okay if I ask for help that I don't have to be in pain anymore so if I am in pain I can do the steps to get out of pain um and then I think the flip side of that is uh the physical effects on my body of all those years like I was on so many medications for so long I was a 15 year old on oxycontin like whenever I wanted I had a like chest full of oxycontin and could just pop it whenever I wanted and obviously no one told me that that was going to destroy the inside lining of my stomach and you know I was on all these intense like epilepsy drugs and just random drug trials and all this stuff which you know it's just so wild that no one tells you but did kind of destroy my stomach and also because the pain was in my back, I was basically like tensing the whole time. So I had all these weird muscle issues as a result and also stomach issues as a result because, um, you know, everything was tense and twisted. So that healing that physical side has also been a long journey, especially as it's kind of 
a lot of it's been me fighting to like understand what's going on you know like for a long time every time I ate it hurt my stomach so much and obviously when you're a teenager and you say that to a doctor they're like really like you sure you don't just have an eating disorder so trying to understand those parts of my body as well and like get the help that I need um that's also been hard I mean it's sort of just being a human is hard isn't it guys it's a lot of admin <laughs> it's a lot of admin. that I did not sign yeah. up for but here we are <laughs> I know I know and I just think um yeah I think as a society like again I've said it a few times and Michelle Elman talks about this so much but like sick children is one of our nightmares it's like this thing that we are just so scared of and as a result I think doctors and everyone doesn't really know how to deal with it and I still feel I'm kind of living with a lot of those ramifications I feel like I'm just so rambling yoga has also helped me loads (laughs) you are not rambling you are being incredible I love you you make the most like profound concise beautiful statement then like oh I'm rambling I'm like you are incredible (laughs) okay I've also been alone now for like seven weeks so I am really out of practice talking to anyone who's not my dog no I mean I'm we've all gone feral it's okay we're in it together You have been so open about your mental health. You've helped so many people. I mean, the blue book is so brilliant. But do you think the relationship between your mental health has kind of... Has that been connected to the way you feel about your body? I think that's kind of, you know, following on a bit from the question you just answered. Yeah, it for sure has. I mean, I think even if your mental health isn't, like, caused by your connection to your body, it affects your connection to your body so much. Like, I think a huge part of my mental health issues has been from this complete hatred I had for my body. And it's funny because, you know, when we talk about hating your body, there are certain things we associate with that, whether it's like hating the way you look or hating your weight or whatever it is. Um, And I think for me, there were definitely elements of hating the way I look, but it was also just hating everything that my body had done to me like my body was my enemy I felt like I had become this you know brain inside a body and the body was the battleground like attacking me every day and even after the the pain went away those feelings don't go away like I had just been through puberty despising my body every day and so I think it was really hard for me to respect my body like treat my body well reconnect with my body like I just felt like two separate beings and um another part of my uh back problem was I any fabric on my back felt like a knife going into my back so for four years I'd only worn huge jumpers like I, I just had a wardrobe of 10 sizes too big for me jumpers and that was all that I could wear because that was the only thing that like didn't touch my back so I also hadn't really seen my body in three years like I had been you know just like wearing a cloak and and hating it and walking around so I've I felt it really felt like I was kind of meeting this person for the first time and and what did that feel like when you met her like when you did when you had that first moment where you're like oh I'm home like you know 
What was that like? Oh, it's such a good question. So I, it, it didn't happen for a long time. Like I think I, I stopped being in pain when I was 17. And then I think when I was about 20, I was living in New York and I had just reached like yet another low. I just was, you know, my the PTSD and the trauma and my mental health was constant and I was, you know, suicidal at the time. And it was just a really, really, really dark time. And you know, sometimes like things come into your life at the right moment. And um, I had obviously when you have any kind of mental health problems, you're recommended yoga and meditation like every single second of every single day. And I'd always resented it so much. And I hadn't, but at that point, you know, I, I hadn't been able to move for so long. And, and after I got better, I, it didn't even occur to me that moving was something I might want to do. Like I was so weak. My muscles were so weak. I so associated movement with pain, like the only movement I'd done was prescribed by doctors and caused me complete agony, you know. The only exercise I'd done at one point, I was put in this like rehab camp where we lay in, I mean, it sounds like I made it up, but we lay in a basement, me and all these children crying, doing these exercises that were causing us like so much pain, but we weren't allowed to stop. And so that was exercise for me, like a basement full of, crying kids with like their skin peeling yeah, off I mean, I mean it was that's horrible. immensely traumatic yeah so I was like okay exercise is not going to be something I'm going to take back on but then I just kind of I don't even remember how it happened but I stumbled into this yoga studio in New York called Laughing Lotus and I was completely alone and it was just like the most beautiful place like everyone there was so wonderful and immediately just felt like somewhere I wanted to be like it wasn't even to do with the yoga I was just like these people are so cool and free and you know it was it's one of it was one of those like real yoga places where like they talk for 10 minutes at the beginning about your connection to your higher self and I just started doing yoga and I I was like okay nothing's working I'm gonna try and do this every day like someone had said to me you know do yoga every day and it will change your life so I said okay I mean I'm not doing anything else I'm gonna start doing this every day and it did like it was the first time I'd met my body it's exactly what you're saying I was like oh this is a thing that I have and because yoga isn't about strength none of the weakness that I built up over these years really mattered and I felt myself building strengths back at a really kind of slow pace and and it was just, it really was like life changing. It was like falling in love with, you know, and not falling in love completely. It's definitely been hard since then. But that was, I think, the moment that I was like, okay, this body could be good for something, maybe. But also, and it's interesting you said because it's like, look, all relationships are hard, whether it's with yourself or with someone else. Yeah. And it's like, you have good days in that relationship and you have, you know, more challenging ones. And it's like, it's, I'm just so glad that you found that moment of peace at the yoga studio. I also think a big part of reconnecting my body was like dressing myself. I know that sounds weird, but you know, I, I'd been wearing these like sacks for years and I suddenly realized that clothes were something that brought me joy and that I could like almost more use my body as like a doll, you know, to dress up. And I was like, that was really healing as well, like just wearing the most ridiculous, you know, I went through years, I still do it, but like I'd wear a tutu every day and I only wore pink for years and I dyed my hair pink and, and dyeing my hair was a huge part of like, I no longer looked like the girl who'd been in pain, you know, I remember the, the day that 
I bleached my hair for the first time. I didn't tell anyone I was doing it. And I looked in the mirror and it was the first time I saw someone that wasn't the girl that had been in pain. And that was amazing. And yeah, being able to like almost wear fancy dress every day was also really helpful because it was like, okay, this, again, my body can be fun. It doesn't have to be you know, just paint. Well, it's like, it's a joyful reconnection and it's like using your body for expression, even if it's through movement or through clothes. It's like coming back to that and going, I can do this. Like, I can make this choice for myself. It's it's completely regaining the control that was maybe, that you felt was lost when you were ill. Totally, yeah. And I think I've, I've had that with a lot, you know, I do, like, I dye my hair, I get fake eyelashes, I've got tattoos, I've like, you know, I wear a lot of makeup, I wear a lot of jewellery. Like, I'm very not precious about my body and I think a lot of that is because I'd kind of given up on it and so now I'm like anything I can do to it is kind of fun you know like I can you know I don't know when people are like oh don't you worry about like regretting a tattoo when you're older I'm like I have a you know huge scar on my back I was in pain for this long like I'm gonna do whatever I want to this skin <laughs> block you know uh, well yeah it's your goddamn right like that's your canvas yeah. use it how you want to yeah and I think that's the scarlet that I know and have seen is so you know with the different colored hair the the way you dress you have a very distinctive personal style so I think that's that really I, I really see that in you so I want to transition topic a little bit and talk a little bit about tv and film so you obviously grew up in the world of film and when Honey and I were speaking earlier, Honey said that you had encyclopedic knowledge about TV. And I know you mentioned watching a lot of TV, um, maybe particularly when you're unwell. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on representation of bodies in TV and film and how or your perception on whether this has changed over time and, and perhaps what it would take for TV and film to be more inclusive when it comes to bodies. For sure. I am an encyclopedia of TV. Thank you so much for (laughs) recognising that. It's my achievement I'm most proud of. Um, Also, when you say, like, you watch a lot of TV, maybe more when you're sick. In the past two months, I've watched 20 seasons of the TV show Survivor, which, um, luckily, there are 40 seasons, so I'm not even halfway through. Um, I can't recommend it enough. And actually, Body Protest favourite, Michelle Ellman, is the only other person I know who watches it. So (laughs) We're in good company. I can't recommend it. Anyway, um, it's so interesting, this, because, I mean, I've got so many different sides to this. Like, my dad makes movies. He particularly makes, like, rom-coms. And I think that, like, I grew up, like, seeing... You know, they, they just these every few years he'd make another film and another like insanely beautiful woman would come into my life for a tiny bit. I mean, we never met them that much, but like, you, you know, we'd visit set and it'd be like, OK, you know, now it's this person. And and it just kind of never occurred to me that it would be different. And my dad isn't someone that necessarily like on the surface you'd associate with like objectifying anyone his films don't even you know then it's not like the women aren't like naked it's not you know gratuitous but it was still like if there's a woman in a film like this she has to be unbelievably beautiful and slim like it wasn't a question and I think from that side of things I saw it so much through the filmmaking thing and it was like I think when you grow up with that especially when you're kind of in that world it was like 
it felt like the rule was like, if you are going to be in this set, in this world, you're going to be white, slim and beautiful. And that's not even questioned. And then it started to change where like some of the men weren't white, slim and beautiful, but the women still were, you know. And it was like, okay, so now I'm realising slightly different rules apply here um, for, for men and women. And then I remember just, I did become completely obsessed with TV when I was sick and starting to watch things that had, you know, weren't necessarily like perfect on representation, but had a bit more representation. Well, Grey's like, that you mentioned I earlier, think, Grey's Anatomy has always been incredible. Yeah, I was going to say, I think... Grey's Anatomy to me is one of the most powerful examples of representation, even though it never gets called out for that, because it is a show watched by everyone. And it is a show that since day one has been incredibly diverse, like in terms of race, in terms of gender and the way women's represented, in terms of sexuality, like it really is amazing. Um, And I... And then also, you know, girls, I remember watching that and being like, oh, I I didn't realise you know, women could look like this and be in films. And and it's just, it's now such a sticking point to me. And I think one of the reasons I'm so passionate about change representation is because I've seen how it doesn't always have to be, it's not always a malicious act when people don't represent people well. Like my dad has never gone, I don't want people of colour in my films. I don't want, you know, women of different sizes in my films. It's just, that's how he grew up. So that's the films he made. He never understood it like to be any different. And we now have so many conversations about this and he's really like willing to say like, yeah, if I've made those films now, it would be different. Like it wouldn't, they wouldn't be the same. Like Notting Hill wouldn't all be white, you know, all these things because, and it was something actually quite easy for him to acknowledge and let go. And I think sometimes so much of activism can be so painful and, contentious and um I think this is something that doesn't have to be you know it's something that actually can just come through learning and can end up having um incredible impact on people I also just think it feels like such a logical step to tell different stories we've heard these stories we've heard the stories of the thin white beautiful people that's fantastic have fun guys like let's have something different (laughs) yeah and also just to like you know I feel privilege to have been able to explain this to my dad and like these conversations don't always have to be like horrible you know they can they can be easier and help everyone like that it can it can be like a net positive and so little in the world can be a net positive that's what I think it's like there's no downside to making I may destroy you or you know girls or insecure like there's downsides to a lot of things but that's something that is just great and positive we spoke with Jesse and BB Cave recently on the podcast and something Jesse said about, I'm not sure now if it was TV or film or both, but she said it feels like now where we're at in TV and film is you'll have one person who may be allowed to be bigger or allowed to be a different colour or maybe a different ability, but everyone else still has to conform to the mould. And so I wonder if, if you have a take on that and then... And then how we break that, how do we how do we push this even further? And as you say, it's like it, it can be a net positive, so how do we get how do we move forward? And you're able to have these conversations with your dad, but there's lots of other people making films and, and in the industry who maybe don't have a scarlet in their <laughs> lives. So 
What's your thoughts sure. there? Although I do end up shouting at like all my dad's friends as well, which okay. Is, well, there we go. Okay. <laughs> no, no, but you're so right. Um, that's just a side note. <laughs> I think when it gets to that, it's just about getting people higher up the chain. Like, Mm -hmm. I think so few people um, understand how actually low down in the power line, like a director, a casting director, or they're higher than the actors at the bottom, you know, and then you have like directors and casting directors and producers. But then, you know, you have all these other insane layers and these people aren't famous. They're like, under the radar but they are the ones making all these decisions you know they're the people like my dad works for that every like powerful writer and director works the people for with the people. money and the people with the money yeah exactly the people with the money the people with the funding like you know the writer director has no money and it's about hiring diverse you know and when I say diverse I literally mean like the realm of diverse I think we're you know especially with like disability representation which is obviously something I care about we're we're nowhere you know it, and it, and that takes hiring writers and directors in that position but then it's also going to take hiring executive producers in that decision because these are the these exactly these are the people with the money and it's not about you know I see so many of these people that have been in this job for so long and have made are responsible for making all the films with all the white people and all the thin people and they're now going wait we need to cram some diversity in this let's hire this part let's hire this part and it's just so wrong like it's the worst version of this because if anyone knows if you are in any way a minority you it's not even a question to you it's where your instincts go you know because you it's the stories you want to tell and it's the people that you know and it's the contacts that you have and we because in a film we only see what we see you know you can sometimes think something's getting better but actually it is just it's happened through the most horrible way I this is like a I met this director recently who's show running a show and he's written it and he's a white man and he wrote the whole show just based on his life you know without really thinking it's got all white people in and then one of the like higher higher up producers once they'd written every script came and was like one of these people needs to be diverse and he was like I I don't know what to do and if I say no you know it's gonna look like horrific but also these are white parts, like, we're not, I'm not just, you know, and I'm a white man, like, it's, you can't just do that, and it, that doesn't help anything, like, I don't think that fixes anything, when you have a script that is written for a white, able-bodied person, and you just fling someone else in there, like, these decisions need to happen at the very beginning, and we need to be, like, commissioning these stories from day one, it's not just about shoehorning someone in, and then getting praise for, something being diverse you know yeah I I completely agree and I think it's really interesting with what you said that it's not just having representation and diversity as as a person who's the writer or the producer it's actually there's all of these other positions as well and I think that that really there's a clear parallel with things like advertising fashion and beauty it's you you've got to have people in finance who are on board not just the designer or the creative director because often you get the creative director who's really on board and wants to do something fun and creative and and a bit different um but they their hands are tied by the finance office or whatever who are like who again the people with the money and are very reluctant to to spend that money because they're like Like, even if you you know obviously my most experiences with my dad but so he's like a white man in his 30s he's hired by someone to write a film about his life He's obviously going to write a film that's all white people. Like, but that's on the 
person that hired him to be like, okay, maybe we don't go for him. Maybe we go for, you know, someone that doesn't look like every single other writer that we've, you know, had in the past forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we like to close the podcast on this because it's very soothing. But what are things you like to do to look after yourself that make you feel at home in your body? Yes, I think it's important when we talk about self-care, like I do yoga and cold swimming and I like exercise, but they're not really self-care. Like they're things I do on like a good mm, day, yeah. you know, like it really annoys me when people talk about exercise or like hard things as self-care yes. because I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not jumping in a cold water when I'm not feeling, I, I do that when I feel like great, <laughs> you know, and I'm like able to put on a fucking wetsuit and go to the lake as soon as I'm below par, like, that is absolutely not what I'm doing. Um, I think my self-care has kind of always looked the same, and, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, but when I'm low, I watch TV, I listen to audiobooks, I play games on my phone, I do some drawing on my iPad, um, and I block everything out. And it's like... <laughs> You know, I there was a long time when I felt shame for that. And I was like, should I be doing all these, like, wellness things that everyone's saying? Should I be, like, meditating and making myself a tea? And, like, I actually think that just is the self-care that works for me. Like, I am so, as we've talked about, like, the biggest journey of my life, I think, has been not being so hard on myself and, like, actually learning how to let myself breathe and be and listen to myself and my brain and my body and I think sometimes just like cocooning myself up in that way is self-care to me um yeah I think I mean I've also just got a puppy and I think animals really help me a lot I get very socially anxious so being able to you know what I do when I'm sad is I isolate and being able to isolate but have a breathing thing there a, yeah, a companion is um, has been really, really helpful. And just, like, not... I think it's less about what is self-care. It's, like, can you get yourself to a point where you're doing that? And to me, it's just letting myself not always... Just not being as hard on myself is what I try to do, you know? And letting myself just have a day where I watch TV. That's really, really lovely. Um, and Scarlett, it's just been so wonderful speaking with you. And I think we touched on it at the beginning, but you're so generous both in your actions, but also in your words and what you're what you share with the world and, and what you've shared with us today. And so just as a final note to end on, what can we, either Honey and I, and then our listeners do to, to support you and, and your work? I mean, you can buy both the books. They're great. Both of you are in the blue book. All the money goes to Shout, which is an amazing charity. And those, you know, are still available. So yeah, those, you can follow me on Instagram, at Scar Curtis. Um, There's funny things actually happen on my Instagram, which is very body positive related, which is, um, sorry, body protest related uh, and kind of body positivity related. But, um, you know, I guess a lot of people follow me for like mental health content and having been sick once content and feminist content. And every time I post a picture of myself where I look nice or where I'm, like, happy, I lose, like, 100 followers. <laughs> and it's... I don't really care that much because, like, Instagram 
it isn't really like my main job you know I'm not that like can I'm, I'm genuinely not that like obsessed with it but I just find it fascinating because I'm like you're allowed to be someone with mental health issues who also sometimes is like I look great today like I'm gonna post a selfie it's wild and then every time I post switch me crying you know I gain a thousand followers like it's wild so yeah That's... follow me on Instagram and like my <laughs> like my selfies in my leotard that one I lost so many I posted a picture where I look vaguely sexy and I literally lost like Thousands. That makes me so because you look so sexy and beautiful. Like people, well, everybody go like Scarlett's sexy pictures, please. Yeah. People only want me to be sad. Yeah, um, well, the algorithm I mean, would work, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, but everyone's always like, "Oh, I get so many more likes when I post selfie," and I'm like, "I don't." <laughs> uh, yeah, and then you know, I guess buy the books, follow me. See, I'm I'm working on a few different things. I've mostly been making. Um, shell art recently beautiful and i might start i might start selling my shells so if you want to buy a shell done um scarlet just showed us a a beautiful painted shell every shell represents every shell represents 10 minutes i'm not writing (laughs) (laughs) i have i've made a lot of shells so that tells you where i'm at What a glorious episode. What a glorious woman. But now it's a very special time. Nadia, would you be able to tell me a bit more about embodiment? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago with Becky. And I'm feeling a bit hungry for a noodle. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm always I'm always a bit of a feeder, so happy to <laughs> happy to happy to oblige. So embodiment, I think as we said last time, it's all about mind-body connection. It's about our lived experiences in our bodies as we engage and work through the world. Um, It's also about how we feel in our body and how we connect to them. I think that's always really useful to to think about when we're thinking about embodiment. And there's a whole number of other things. So it's, it's also about how we feel a sense of ownership and agency over our bodies, feeling that we are like inhabiting our bodies, so kind of going back to being in our bodies, being able to really listen and respond to what our body needs. And that can be from like food, from sex, from rest, from like physical touch, like really being able to listen. I mean, this whole topic really resonates, especially with bringing it back to yoga and embodiment. I think Mm -hmm. it's so, I don't know, it really resonates with me because I think definitely connecting with my body through yoga was one of the things that helped me connect with my body on a broader sense. So what actually shapes our experience of embodiment? Yeah, so this is a great question and where I need to do a shout out to Dr. Neva Paran, a professor of psychology based in Canada. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have a couple of really amazing conversations with her and she's written so much about the topic. So if you're in the scientific body image space, she's like the go-to person on embodiment um, or definitely one of them. So... What Neva describes in terms of what shapes our experiences of embodiment are we've got these like three core ways in which we can dial up how we experience embodiment, which I find really helpful to think about in terms of thinking what embodiment actually is as well. So the first, and perhaps is the most obvious, is focused on our 
physical bodies, so the physicality of, of our bodies, and includes things like that joyful, immersive engagement in physical activities when we're not focused on what we look like, and that's a really critical aspect. So that's the kind of, like, dancing around the living room. Exactly. Free-spirited movement, carefree. Yeah, dancing around the living room is perfect, but that's also where yoga fits in, where um, swimming comes in. We speak about swimming quite a lot, so all of those kind of things. Um, It's also thinking about that physicality aspect, thinking and feeling safe in our bodies. And then, this is I always think of you in this aspect, is practicing self-care when you're really responding to what your body needs so going back to like being able to really listen to listen to your body I find that very interesting because I in my mind so connect self-care and feeling safe to me those two Mm. things are so interconnected in terms of I'm very I mean I'm gonna say something that's gonna make me sound a little a little crazy but that's (laughs) all right I often say to myself if I can feel anxiety in my body I'll be like you're safe, you are safe, and try and say that out loud and really, you know, and I practice that as my self-care of like, you know, Mm -hmm. making sure to verbalise things like that. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, but that's that's, that's beautiful and and a really, it's like how it's also interconnected. Um, So that's the first kind of like core dial. The second is more about how we're thinking. So, and it's our ability to be able to either filter out or reject things like diet culture, like gender stereotypes, like objectification. So just a note on objectification when women's bodies in particular are positioned as objects, they're just there to be looked at, and that all those ideas that women should be small, they should be quiet and submissive. The more that we can filter out these pressures or just reject them or like critique them, the better we can connect with our bodies because things like objectification get in the way of of our relationship with our bodies. Well, to me, that makes me think of the John Berger ways of seeing of like men look mm. at women, women look at men looking at women. And it's yeah. like, it, it takes you completely out of your body trying to fit into a kind of, well, to, trying to perform what you think other people would like you to perform. And it's like, no, you need to be in your body, connected and fuck what everyone else is thinking about you. I mean, exactly, exactly. So what's the third dial? So I feel like very keeping with so many of our conversations on the body protest, the third dial is community. So, mm. and like, especially thinking about those empowering, equitable communities. So being a body protester, being, yay, yay I know, being an anti-diet rioter, thinking back to Becky, being a member of I Weigh, like being a member of... of being a six ad girl. Yes, exactly. So like all of these ways that we can find community and feel like we really belong within those. Yeah, finding your chosen family, I think yeah. is so important and to feel safe and heard and seen yeah it's it's in a way it's kind of connecting the broader personal themes it well Mm -hmm. it's taking the kind of personal dials and taking it on a broader level isn't it yeah and it's spaces where you're allowed to be in your body where you you're allowed to be safe you're allowed to be in your body you're allowed to just dance around in your living room and nobody cares and I think all of those spaces are for that so completely so can you talk a bit about the link between embodiment and yoga Yeah, of course. I found this really lovely theoretical paper published last year in the Journal of Eating Disorders by Dr. Neva Paran and Dr. Diane Newmark-Steiner, whose name might sound familiar for our keen listeners, um, because Bryn mentioned Diane as an important mentor to her. So this is, again, how this world is very small. 
That's so, it's very interconnected, but we like that. That's not, and we love a mentor here at the Body Protest. So nothing but love for Diane. Thank you, Dr. Diane. Exactly. I mean, I think we could spend episodes just talking about the work that Diane's done in terms of the Project Eat studies, um, but she's got a, a very keen interest in yoga and actually practices, so she practices yoga herself and I think also, I believe, is a teacher of yoga too. So um, anyway, that's a side note about Diane. No, um, but I love that. that <laughs> I she's actually, she's clocked the, what is it, 700 hours? Like, she's done that, the training. It's incredible. I know, very much um, embodying, like, the work that she does. So thinking about yoga, it's really important to emphasize that yoga is a practice that involves physical postures, focused breathing, mindfulness, meditation. So it's not just the movements. There's, it's, there's a lot more to it than that. It's that breath and connection piece. I think about in yoga classes, the one thing that teachers always say is, remember, you can always come back to your breath. And I think that's something we can all take into our everyday lives is you can always return to your breath. Your breath is yours. And that is one thing that you can mm-hmm. always come back to to feel connected with yourself. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, no. But that's, that's beautiful. That's completely it. And so what this paper describes so beautifully is how practicing yoga can turn up all of those dials that we've just spoken about. So I'll go through this like very simplistically, but I'll save the paper in the Knowledge Noodle Bank. So if you want to read up more, you can, you know, get all the juicy um, details. But things like practicing the asanas, so the physical postures can help you feel like joyful and immersive in your body. So it's got that physical movement piece. Some of the poses can feel really emboldening and empowering. So thinking about the, the warrior poses, which are designed to be like big and take up as much space as you can. And I'm waving my arms around like, <laughs> like people can actually see me but honey can um, I can you are illustrating taking up space beautifully and I love it but but that's it so it's kind of counteracting that idea that our bodies should be small and take up less space so you have that aspect of it and then what was really nice they also brought into practicing yoga in diverse spaces so in classes where you've got all different kinds of bodies in terms of body size body shape Um, different ethnicities different ages different abilities all of that can foster a sense of community and reframing in terms of thinking about the magic of our bodies rather than what our bodies look like and are our bodies good enough or look a certain way and then there's like this whole fact that you can modify poses during a class you can go into child's pose at any point you want as a form of self-care and that's kind of bringing you back to this idea of like being very attentive to your body's needs listening to your body and having that attuned self-care it's not you know i think yoga can be so intimidating to people because it's like when you think of yoga i think a lot of people think of a very skinny white woman in lululemon doing a handstand Mm. and it's like that's not it like that's a part of it sure but that's not it and it's like I think it's so important to remember that you it's you're there for you you're not no one's looking at you when you're on the mat mm-hmm. you come back to the breath and me and Scarlett bonded over this when she took me to her special yoga studio in New York and I also I was so at the time in which I came to see her in New York I was so traumatized I had been through so much I was so disconnected from my body mm-hmm. and she was like honey we're gonna do a yoga class today and I really was apprehensive and I didn't really want to go but I did And I went and I remember it was the first time I felt connected to my body in the longest time and getting on the mat and doing a really hard yoga class and then being able to check in with myself and go, no, you need to get into child's pose now. Mm. I was like, I'm so fucking brave and I know myself and I'm going to be fine. And me and Scarlett bonded at the end of the class of like, 
people who are able to drop into child's pose and know when they need to are the yeah. bravest fuckers on the planet. <laughs> like, truly. Because <Yeah. laughs> it's so like, funny. especially in a New York yoga class when everyone is so intimidating and chic. But yoga is not about that. Yoga is about being yourself and embodied. Well, it's about embodiment completely. Yeah, but, and that's completely it. And I mean, I love that, that story. And you're completely right yoga is not about that it is about being in your body you don't need to be wearing a certain outfit you don't need to look a certain way and so my mum teaches yoga as well which is always kind of and you know my mum's in her 60s and actually when she talks about yoga she talks about her dad doing yoga and so we also think about yoga as having this like gendered lens on it as well Mm. but it's 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 absolutely not. not it's um yoga's for everybody exactly um i love that your mum does teaches yoga and i would love for us to have a yoga class with your mum please oh my goodness she does um these it's been amazing actually over the last year because she's like all of us has had to pivot to being on zoom all the time Mm. and so i was just so you know i just felt so proud when what last march suddenly she's popping up on zoom with her yoga class and it's just it's it's so pure that is so wholesome i know the majority of the people in the class are in their like 50s and 60s i want to say i mean i don't not 100% but you know they're they're not they're not your 20 somethings right but also it is completely creating that safe sense of community Mm, like hosting a yoga class and especially hosting a a zoom yoga class is really giving people a space to move joyfully and exist at peace in their bodies um scarlett didn't talk about yoga in terms of body image or eating disorders but you mentioned that the paper was published in the journal of eating disorders what's the role of yoga in terms of body image and eating disorders yeah, so this is such a hot topic in the field of body image and eating disorders right now. There are more and more papers published all the time. People are really interested in the value of yoga, um, both in terms of promoting or fostering positive body image and also within eating disorder treatment and prevention settings. Um, and it all makes sense when you when you think about it, because if you're struggling with negative body image and or disordered eating in any way, you're generally quite disconnected from your body. So, it, and that could be like whether you're punishing your body through restriction or some kind of grueling exercise regime. That is kind of the opposite of what we are talking about in terms of embodiment, right? So if you're feeling really embodied and connected to your body, you, you don't, you wouldn't put yourself through that. So it's really thinking about positioning yoga as an avenue to reconnection with your body healing and just improving your relationship with your body i think that's the other thing with embodiment it's all about that relationship that we like to to talk about well look it's the most important relationship of your life isn't it it's the person you consistently have to come home to bed to like that's yeah, that's ab- it it's absolutely it's absolutely. just you and yourself in the mirror at the end of the day brushing your teeth so you better get to liking that face because you're going to be looking at it for a long old time absolutely and see how it evolves and and grows and that that's just how it is so on the topic so just to to give you a a bit of a taste because there's just so much work that's been that's been done and and maybe it's something we come back to but there's been a whole bunch of studies now that show a relationship between practicing yoga and positive body image so people who practice yoga generally feel better in their bodies and more appreciative of their bodies respect look after their bodies more um Related to that, there are other studies that are showing that 
practicing yoga can reduce some of those eating disorder risk factors so like self-objectification body dissatisfaction a drive for thinness because again it just comes back to reconnecting with your body and and having and reframing how you're thinking about your body i think um and then i think this is really interesting we're seeing yoga being included more and more in eating disorder treatment settings so it's it's not the only thing you want within a within eating disorder treatment obviously but just something that can enhance that process and there have been a couple of studies now that have shown that practicing yoga can reduce binge eating patterns reduce anxiety around eating in clinical settings as well so in, in residential care and can help manage distress around food or bodies as well so um, can be really a really powerful tool and again how we talk about that toolkit in terms of repairing or healing that relationship with body and or food it's something that's definitely worth considering and I say that as someone who's always been like whenever someone's recommended yoga to me I'd be like um no thank you very much but I yeah. will not <laughs> uh, <laughs> no but I used to be exactly the same it's because especially when you've experienced any kind of mental health issue people are always like yoga 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 and I was like I'm too fucking depressed to do yoga fuck off and then of course the minute I went to a yoga studio and saw all of these lovely diverse people just like having a wholesome fucking time moving on the mat sweating I was like okay I can fuck with this and it annoyingly does make you feel better like you know and I was about to say science can't explain but literally science can explain and it just has (laughs) yeah and that and that's it and actually through the pandemic I've kind of you know given yoga a bit more of a go and I think something about like for me not being in a studio not having the mirrors not having people around me I mean yoga is not supposed to be competitive that's one of the features of it right but I am competitive (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I also used to be very very flexible so then it there's a bit of stuff in there that makes it yeah it's it's hard not to check back on where Mm. you used to yeah of course you are always going to be judging how you used to be compared to how you are now but I think that's also one of the beautiful things about yoga is it gives you space to sit with exactly how your body is in that moment and that if if we are able to reframe the way we look at our bodies in yoga that can be a really beautiful thing and be like wow look at okay yesterday I couldn't do this but today I can and maybe tomorrow I won't be able to but you know maybe I can do this yeah that's that's it your body might be different in the morning to the evening there's there's all of that and I think there's something for me about doing everything I like to do at the moment is in like 10 minute chunks of like literally anything <laughs> but um that's what I'm doing at the moment it's like 10 minutes 10 minutes Cause te- the fact is 10 minutes in the grand scheme of things everyone's got 10 minutes so mm. I completely I love the idea of doing things in 10 minute chunks because you're like come on we can do this come on I can I can do it I can do yeah. it we love to hear it. Well, Nadia, thank you for that delicious bowl of noodles. Thank you for listening to The Body Protest. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode and it would mean the world to us if you could subscribe, rate and review. You can follow Honey on Instagram at honeykinney and you can follow Nadia at nadia.craddock. This podcast is produced and edited by the glorious Daisy Grant and it's brought to you by the Pink Protest Podcast Network. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.